This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. Hello, good morning and you're very welcome to Talking Books with me, Susan Cahill. Well, we've quite an inspiring show for you this lazy Sunday morning. Professor John Crown from St Vincent's Hospital reviews an astonishingly beautiful book on the evolution of cancer treatment. And we hear how the war on cancer took on almost military-style proportions when mustard gas used in World War II accidentally heralded a revolution in the treatment of cancer. And in December 1943, the American invasion fleet at Barry Harbour in Italy was bombed by the Luftwaffe. But something strange was noticed in the day afterwards. Many of the young sailors and soldiers started developing skin burns, skin blistering, lung poisoning. And the Americans flew in a team of military medical experts headed by a gentleman called Stuart Alexander. Dr. Alexander immediately diagnosed these people as suffering from mustard gas. Dr. Alexander and the team noticed that the white cell counts of these young sailors went down. Sometimes their lymph glands and spleens rather shrank. And meanwhile, unknown to them, in a very secret program that was going on in Yale in America, another team of military doctors had actually started doing experiments on some kinds of cancer with liquefied derivatives of mustard gas. These two events provided a great impetus for the development of toxic drugs as anti-cancer chemicals. And for all aspiring writers out there, I meet up with Vanessa Lachlan founder of writers.ie and we hear about new online writing workshops live streamed from Ireland. But first, The Emperor of All Maladies, A Biography of Cancer by Siddhartha Mukherjee is an unbelievably interesting and profound book. Its pages are filled with compelling human stories of hope, passion, bravery and loss as it charts the story of cancer and the people fighting it. Well, I popped over to St. Vincent's Hospital and met with one of Ireland's leading cancer specialists, Professor John Crown, to review this magnificent book. The book I've chosen, I must say, I think is a simply extraordinary book. It's called The Emperor of All Maladies, A Biography of Cancer. And it basically weaves the story of the increasing knowledge about cancer from really early prehistory all the way through the modern era. Uh, It gives a wonderful personal account of the journey that several individual cancer patients uh, have made. It's written by a young cancer specialist, Dr. Siddharata Mukherjee, and I'm delighted that Dr. Mukherjee has won a Pulitzer Prize for this work because it's a stunning, stunning book. He started writing it while he was a trainee in cancer medicine in, in Harvard. He has the wonderful gift for telling very personal stories about patients he's interacted with, other patients whose histories were critical in determining the shape of cancer research, also the personalities of some of the doctors and nurses and researchers who were involved in cancer care in Boya. An interesting bunch they were, ranging from William Halstead, who was a surgeon in Baltimore in the late 19th century and a very important researcher. He was really the first person who developed an operation which cured breast cancer, but he was also uh, a man who struggled throughout his life with morphine and cocaine addiction and and indeed was uh, getting his stashes of drugs sent in with his shirts from Paris 
Uh, he was also a very dapper man, very colourful character, uh, made a big impact. The wonderful, wonderful story of uh, Dr. Sidney Farber. Dr. Farber had the saddest job in the world. He was a paediatric hospital pathologist. He used to do post-mortems on young children, uh, many of whom had died from cancer and leukemia. And he was so terribly moved by this that he really wanted to see if he could do something to try and help the cancer problem, especially the paediatric cancer problem. And uh, he set about doing research on new drugs in childhood leukemia. And it's very interesting because uh, round about the time that he started his work, the first evidence was coming out that a different blood disease, a kind of anemia, a kind of anemia that's caused by deficiency of folate, one of the vitamins, that you could fix it by giving patients uh, folate tablets. And he thought, well, gee, I wonder if that would work in leukemia. And of course, he gave it to some children who were dying from leukemia, desperate to try anything, sadly, and their leukemia got worse. Uh, the disease started growing more aggressively. Now, obviously, the experiment stopped immediately and a lesser person might have just retreated back to the lab and back to the autopsies and said oh my goodness this isn't for me but he actually learned from this that if the folate fed leukemia cells maybe if somebody had a folate blocker it would actually stop the leukemia cells from growing and he knew of one such blocker that was being developed uh, in uh, an american drug company uh, literally laboratories i believe it was and he got a supply of it back in those simple days when you didn't have research committees and ethics, ethics committees etc he got the drug and gave it to some of the young patients who were dying of childhood leukemia and lo and behold a whole bunch of them started getting better and not just a little better but a lot better their blood counts started to improve their some of them had tumors from their leukemia they they, they shrank some of them had had painful bony disease that got better their pain went away and they were restored to in some cases quite spectacular health the problem was it was very short-lived it didn't last for very long but it, it it gave a huge shot in the arm if you'll pardon the pun to the idea that yes even helpless hopeless cancers could be treated with drugs meanwhile an absolutely extraordinary thing had happened it was recognized after the first world war uh, as your listeners will know, in the First World War, many of the young men in the trenches were gassed. Gas, poison gas, mustard gas, a terrible weapon, widely used in the First World War. It was so bad that interwar treaties stopped its use. And despite the brutality of the Second World War, uh, poison gas was hardly ever used. And in December 1943, the American invasion fleet at Barry Harbor in Italy, the fleet that was supplying the invasion forces that had just landed in Italy, was bombed by the Luftwaffe in a surprise raid. Uh, and it was a terrible bombing. 20-odd 20, 20 ships sank. It was the second worst bombing, they reckon, uh, raid after Pearl Harbor in the Second World War, the second worst maritime bombing. But something strange was noticed in the day afterwards. Many of the young sailors and soldiers and, and civilians, indeed, who were in the Barry area, who were not injured by the bombs, were not burned in the fires, started developing skin burns, skin blistering, lung poisoning, and the Americans flew in a team of military medical experts headed by a gentleman called Stuart Alexander. And Dr. Alexander immediately diagnosed these people as suffering from mustard gas. So the first reaction was, you know, those damn Nazis, they've been dropping mustard gas on our boys. But in fact, it wasn't. It was American mustard gas uh, that the Americans brought with them in the invasion because they were worried that the Germans might use it first. And if they did, they had a supply ready for retaliatory purposes. So it was American mustard gas that was released. And in an interesting historical footnote, the cover-up was extraordinary about this uh, to the extent it went as far as Churchill, who altered that the death certs be altered to indicate nothing to do with mustard gas, but to say they had died from burns in action. Anyway, Dr. Alexander and the team 
noticed that the white cell counts of these young sailors went down. Sometimes their lymph glands and spleens rather shrank. And meanwhile, unknown to them, in a very secret program that was going on in Yale in America, another team of military doctors, doctors Goodman, Phillips, and Gilman, had actually started doing experiments on some kinds of cancer, what cancers of the white blood cell system, with liquefied derivatives of mustard gas, and they were again seeing some shrinkages. So these two events provided a great impetus for the, the development of toxic drugs as anti-cancer chemicals. And soon, the work that Farber had done in Boston with the uh, folate antagonist was married with this work. And throughout the 19, late 1940s and 1950s, many, many experiments were done looking at combinations of new drugs and, and new chemotherapy drugs were uh, discovered and described, usually, by the way, through a process of complete serendipity, through trial and error. Basically, uh, the modus operandi was cancer cells would be grown in a dish, different candidate chemicals that somebody maybe had written in because it was something they knew from folklore that this was supposed to be good for cancer or something else which was known to be poisonous, were then dropped into the wells where the cells were growing. And if the cells stopped growing, presto, that might be a drug. So even though there was nothing known about how the drugs might work or their mechanism of action, they were identified as potential cancer drugs. And of course, hundreds of thousands of chemicals were screened to give a very few drugs in the end that became actual medicines. But that process gave a number of anti-cancer drugs such that by the early 1960s, it was apparent that there were some cancers for which chemotherapy, these poisonous drugs, with, by the way, there are very poisonous side effects, was producing a major benefit. Mainly the blood cancers like leukemia, lymphoma cancers, and some other kinds of cancer, breast cancer in women. Uh, responses were also being, being reported. And it's an extraordinary read, John. Um, it's engrossing. It's emotional. It tells a quite a painful story. The Emperor of All Maladies is described as a almost like a military history. Are we in a war with cancer? I must say, we, we in our discipline have tended to use the military analogy in the war on cancer. And, and certainly, America, Inc., went to war on cancer in the late 1960s and more prominently in the early 1970s when Nixon signed the National Cancer Act. And a lot of the impetus for that came from Farber. Farber actually became very politically connected. Uh, he had powerful backers such as Mary Lasker, philanthropists who decided that perhaps if we put all this effort into cancer that we put into going to the moon, that we can cure cancer. Now, good idea, but there were a few problems with it. There was a critical scientific, and I, I'm actually so slow to use the word error because it sounds judgmental. These were giants of people that did this early research. But there was a colossal misunderstanding. They all thought that because chemotherapy was curing some cancers, that if we got more chemotherapy, we could cure all cancers. And in fact, that wasn't the case. There were some cancers which by their very nature were never going to be cured by chemotherapy. Chemotherapy was a useful instrument, but limited in its general applicability. And it really required a much greater investment in the science of cancer biology unraveling, understanding the mysteries of the cancer cell, what made cancer cells different from normal cells, what potential vulnerabilities cancer cells might have, which differentiated them from normal cells and, and enabled, the, enabled them to be selectively targeted with agents which wouldn't kill your normal cells. Because again, remember, remember where chemotherapy came from. It was generally poisonous to all living tissue and particularly poisonous to rapidly growing tissue. So all kinds of awful chemotherapy side effects would occur, such as hair loss, low blood counts, you know, very severe tummy problems, etc. So it took quite a while, I think, for the penny to drop that there really was a wall that we were starting to crash into. And, and believe me, I'm just about old enough to have been part of that old phase of cancer research too. My early career was spent on trying to batter cancer into submission with bigger and bigger doses of chemotherapy. And we developed really clever ways of supporting patients through very extreme chemotherapy while we tried to cure their cancer by poisoning it. And it didn't work so well. It worked a little bit in a few cancers. But meanwhile, and this book 
the emperor of all maladies, I think, tells the story so wonderfully. Meanwhile, the science was catching up. And John, there's a beautiful quote in the start by British historian June Goodfield, and it very much sets the kind of the stage for what this book also is about. It's not just a popular science book. It's not just a history book on cancer. It's very much a story of people, of human stories, of patients. And to quote June, cancer begins and ends with people. In the midst of scientific abstraction, it is sometimes possible to forget the one basic fact. Doctors treat diseases, but they also treat people. And this precondition of their professional existence sometimes pulls them in two directions at once. sitting here in Vincent's private clinic in your very busy consultancy rooms. It must be an extraordinary thing for anybody to walk through the door and meet you, Dr. Crown, because if we look at the statistics facing cancer patients today in Ireland, some of them are pretty grim. Well, I, I would have to say, Sue, in the first instance that we have, I believe, an extraordinarily talented cohort of cancer specialists in this country. We have only about 34 medical oncologists who are the specialists who treat cancer with drugs in the country, which is a much smaller number than we should have. But they are disproportionately trained in wonderful places. And in fact, about... About 70% of them have trained in the top five cancer centers in North America, and the others have trained in superb centers in London and, and Paris and other places. So we have a really great cohort of disproportionately young cancer specialists here that are not only great doctors, great people, and great researchers. So when somebody comes in the door to meet me, typically they've already found out that they've had cancer. The diagnosis is usually made by a non-cancer specialist or indeed by a surgeon specializing in cancer. And then the decision is made that they might benefit from getting some kind of drug treatment for their cancer. And as we've gotten more sophisticated, I've focused on a smaller number of cancer types. Our unit in Vincent's is now sufficiently large that different oncologists here specialize in, in different types of cancer. So my practice is disproportionately women with breast cancer. And it's the great, great privilege of my life uh, over the last 30 years that I have been involved in breast cancer research. Uh, and I, I'm grateful that I've lived and practiced long enough to see major improvements taking place in the disease. It, internationally, the, I guess from a practical point of view, some of the biggest things that have happened are that women now seldom have to lose their breast when they're diagnosed with breast cancer. Much more typically, they will retain the breast and have a smaller operation. And that's a huge part of the problem. Terrible, tragic loss for a young woman to lose one or both breasts to a diagnosis of cancer. I would say the second thing that has been most satisfying for me has been we've discovered that breast cancer really isn't one disease. It's, it's a group of different diseases. So within the different disease types, for some of them, the treatment has gotten dramatically better. There's one particular kind of breast cancer, the HER2 positive type. And, and again, the book, The Emperor of All Maladies, tells the story so really beautifully, uh, where phenomenal headlining research done by a very compassionate and very brilliant doctor called Dennis Slayman in Los Angeles and gave huge understanding and insight into why that particular kind of breast cancer was as dangerous as it was. But not just that, he developed treatments which suddenly made it perhaps now the least dangerous kind of breast cancer because the treatment is so dramatically better for it. And I'm very happy that I had the opportunity. I had a 
a road to Damascus moment with Dr. Slayman uh, about 14 years ago. I had met him once before uh, when he came to give a lecture in Dublin. We had a very pleasant evening together exchanging ideas. And then in one of those great lucky breaks in my life, I found myself sitting beside him completely serendipitously on a long plane flight. So I had the most exclusive private tutorial in breast cancer probably in history. I had four to five hours of uninterrupted time with Dennis Lehman going through all the research, the story of what he had done. And I so recommend this book just for the part on the Her2 story, for nothing else. It's a wonderful story. And, and at the end of it, I became very firmly locked into his research system and we became very close collaborators. And thankfully, as a result, Irish women got access to a lot of the drugs and, and work that he was helping to develop at a much earlier stage than would have been the case in, in other countries. I gave a lecture today in DCU and I was showing a slide, one of my favorite slides. Back in about the year 2000, uh, I saw a patient, a very nice middle-aged lady, who came to me with her, the HER2-positive kind of breast cancer with extensive disease in her liver. Her liver was about to fail. She was getting critically ill, close to death. And she was going to be one of the first people in Ireland to go on to a particular trial with Herceptin, which is the drug uh, that Dr. Slayman's name is most associated with. And because it was early in the trial, there was a supply issue. The drug didn't get here in time. By the time the drug got here, she was too sick to go on the trial. Her liver was failing. She was deeply yellow with jaundice, and she was no longer eligible for the trial. But we begged the company if we could give her the Herceptin anyway. To their great credit, Genentech Roche let us give it to her with a, a simpler kind of chemotherapy, and she started getting better. Within about two months, her liver function was basically normal. Within a couple of years, her liver scans were normal. We kept her on the treatment. After five years, we didn't know should we continue the treatment or stop the treatment. We kept her on the treatment for about seven years, and I saw her last week in clinic, 13 years later. She's been off treatment now for six years, not a hint of cancer in her body. Uh, and it's things like that that you really live for, and I really, really hope that I do live and practice long enough to see that kind of advance being made in some of the other kinds of breast cancer and indeed of some of the other cancers that are out there. And what type of person will be interested, you think, in the emperor of all maladies? Who is this book for? Well, you know, it's interesting you should ask that because I, as a cancer specialist and researcher in the field for 30 years, learned stuff from the book. Uh, I recommend it routinely to people that are interested in science, to people that are interested in healthcare, to nurses, to doctors. I tell all my student oncologists they should. In fact, I know one of my oncology colleagues has been systematically buying copies as presents for all of the junior doctors when they start a career in oncology, which I think is a really good idea. But I think a general readership will find this book interesting. You do not need any science background for this. It's full of great human stories. There's a mixture of detective stories. There's a mixture of crime stories. It goes into great detail about the highly, highly questionable activities of the tobacco industry when they were first confronted with the news that their product was a major cause of cancer and how they desperately tried to suppress that information. Wonderful stories about uh, people who developed the pap smear. Papanicolo, who was a poor Greek doctor, emigrated to America. He couldn't get licensed to practice medicine in America. He was working as a salesman, working in a carpet shop, ultimately became a porter in a hospital and then managed to claw his way back into the medical system and made one of the most stunningly important discoveries, the pap smear, which has saved probably hundreds of thousands of lives around the world. So the book is everything from a social and economic history of cancer to popular science to military history, human psychology. It has it all. I would have to say, I guess people would say, oh, he would say that, wouldn't he, being a cancer specialist. I think it is one of the greatest books I have ever read. And again, I wouldn't want people to be frightened off from reading it, thinking that it's some kind of terribly terse, turgid science. It's not. He's a wonderful, wonderful ability to communicate scientific complex to people with no scientific background. 
And he does it so exquisitely through the experiences he's had treating different patients. Yes, I mean, he is a master writer. I mean, it's just a beautiful piece of writing. I mean, forgetting the actual content, the, the, the sentence construction, the, uh, the, just the, the language that he uses is without being, you know, overpoweringly poetical or anything like that. It's just beautiful. I was looking at it thinking, you know, I wrote a book review on this book once, and I, I, I prefaced the book review by saying I had mixed feelings about the book, and I then gave it a glowing review. And I said, why the mixed feelings? I said, I wish I wrote it. Finally, John, um, one of the big questions the author poses in The Emperor of All Maladies is a question, is it possible to eradicate cancer from our bodies and from societies forever? Can we be hopeful? I think we can be extremely hopeful that the treatment and the prevention of cancer will get dramatically better. I don't believe there will be a single panacea, a single magic bullet. I don't think somebody with kind of crazy, fizzy white hair is going to jump up in his lab someday shouting, Eureka, Eureka, and have the cure for cancer. I don't think it's going to be like that. I think it's it's much more likely that we will see what we've seen, which is slow, steady progress on all fronts. I must say, as I'm getting older, I'm increasingly interested in prevention. Uh, and I think we've learned a number of very simple insights into cancer prevention in recent years. And one of the big ones is all the stuff that, you know, your mom told you was, was basically a lot of it was right. Don't get too fat. Watch the dietary intake. Keep the calories down. Do a bit of exercise. The stuff that in general decreases your risk of getting heart disease also decreases your risk of getting cancer. Of course, never smoke. If you do smoke, stop. It's never too late to stop. There will always be a health benefit from stopping cigarettes. A society, I believe, must tackle the tobacco problem forthrightly. My own, as you know, I also wear a hat of being a member of, of uh, Shannon Aaron, and you know, but it's critically important that governments wage the war on the tobacco industry at full throttle. That that is a war for definite. And to that end, I've made a proposal that we should, as a group of societies in the Western world, commit ourselves to the idea that by the year 2030, it will be illegal to do for-profit commerce in tobacco. And on a curious note, John, the Emperor of All Maladies has an Irish connection. The Irish connection in the book is quite interesting. One of the key figures uh, in modern cancer research was a gentleman called Dennis Burkett, who was a surgeon. He was from Fermanagh. He went to medical school in Trinity. He was a religious man, and uh, he originally contemplated a career in, in holy orders, but instead went abroad to work as a doctor in basically mission hospitals in, in Africa, where he did wonderful work. But he also had a very curious mind, and he noticed that many of the children he saw, they developed an unusual form of cancer around their jaw area, uh, which was in fact a kind of lymphoma, a kind of cancer that arises in white blood cells. And Burkitt had become aware that there was some suggestion that perhaps some of the research in America was showing that lymphoma cancers might respond somewhat to chemotherapy. The, his other colleague in this was a, an, an Irish surgeon called Mr. Clifford. I believe Mr. Clifford was originally from Kerry, but he was a University College Dublin and St. Vincent's graduate, who then went, as many Irish doctors at the time, went to, to work in the UK. Uh, and he also ultimately spent much of his time working in international centers, but he and Burke had worked together, discovered these tumors, and they got in touch with uh, Sloan Kettering Hospital in New York, where subsequently, many years later, I went to train and many other Irish doctors went to train. And they sent out a bright young oncologist called Dr. Herbert Etkin. Now, Dr. Etkin was a German who had come to New York uh, after the war, and he uh, did brilliant, so had a long, still alive, did a long, long career in cancer research. But Herbert Etkin went to East Africa with a bag of cyclophosphamide, which was a chemotherapy drug, which was derived from the same mustard gas, which had been discovered to have caused all the terrible injuries at Barry Harbor. And they treated these children, and many of them went into remission, and some of them went into long-term remission. There's another Irish angle in the story, perhaps a very unglamorous drug, which has perhaps saved more lives with 
breast cancer than any other drug in the world is a little molecule called tamoxifen, which was developed by ICI, the British uh, pharmaceutical company. Originally, they were trying to develop, I guess, some irony here, considering our, our own troubled relationship with contraception, but the, it was originally being developed as a contraceptive pill. Didn't work too well as a contraceptive pill, but because it had an anti-estrogen effect, some bright folks decided maybe it will work in breast cancer, which we know is fed by estrogen. And the first clinical trial with it was done by an Irish woman called Mary Patricia Cole, who was originally from Cavan. She did her training in Northern Ireland and then moved to England, where she worked in a very famous Christie Cancer Hospital in Manchester. And in the early 1960s, she started treating a group of women with advanced breast cancer with tamoxifen and reported tremendous responses and shrinkages and, and remissions. And she's a real unsung hero of this battle. I, I've mentioned her name in Shannon Aaron, and I'm trying to see if there's some way she can be appropriately commemorated, probably in Cavan. Uh, you know, a real pioneer in this field. But you know, Sue, there was one other Irish connection to this. Every oncologist hears the story of Barry Harbour. We all hear it. It's in our folklore. It's one of our, not a myth, but it's one of our foundation stories. It teaches us humility, that what we give patients has actually come from chemical weapons. And I was in the unit in Vincent's one day, and I suddenly found myself reading this little pale photocopied article about Barry Harbour. And it was written in the first person. I said, oh, that's interesting. It was written by a survivor. And then as I read the article, the person said, after the war, when I came back to Ireland, and I said, oh my goodness, who was this? And I asked one of the nurses and she said, that's Dermot Clark. Dermot is a patient in the unit. He's 90 and he was getting chemotherapy for cancer himself. Dermot was a sailor in Barry Harbour. He was on a ship that was berthed immediately beside the SS John Harvey, which was the ship carrying the mustard gas bombs. An hour before the bombing raid started, the harbour master told him to move the ship to a distant part of the harbour. Dermot always said it was very like Dunleary Harbour, outer walls and an inner wall. And they were moved, thankfully, to the other side of one of the inner walls. And then 20 minutes later, along arrived the German Luftwaffe. And the carnage ensued. Dermot ship was bombed, escaped being destroyed. The John Harvey, of course, blew up in an incredible explosion. Dermot recounted vividly the smell of garlic that filled the air, which is the classic sign of a mustard gas attack. The harbour master ordered Dermot's captain to sink the ship because their cargo of jerry cans or petrol was so inflammable, they were afraid it would be a catastrophe. The water they were in was too shallow to sink it. So their second orders were to sail the ship out through this lake of fire that was Barry Harbour out to the open sea. And through some miracle, they got out there, patched the ship together. It needed to go back to England for repairs. They didn't want to waste the cargo space going back to England, so they filled it up with something that hadn't been seen in England throughout the Second World War, oranges. So Dermot and the cargo of oranges was brought back to Liverpool, where they were distributed by the rationing authorities to children who needed oranges. Years later, after Dermot had survived the war, survived the Berlin airlift where the plane ahead of him was shot down by the Russians, Dermot was working for an aircraft company in Croydon where he met a beautiful young woman who he started courting and ultimately married and had five children when he moved back to Ireland and became the director of operations in Aer Lingus. Dermot's wife subsequently told the story years later how she remembered when she was a little girl in Wales in 1944 when the first oranges arrived for the children. Professor Crown, thank you so much for inviting Talking Books into your hectic and very valuable consultancy suite here in Vincent's Hospital. Thank you, Sue, and I do recommend this book unreservedly. I don't believe anybody who takes it up will be disappointed by it.
And that was the exquisite Italian pianist and composer Ionity playing Out of the Night from his beautiful collection Echoes from 2003. Ending this week's review of The Emperor of All Maladies, a biography of cancer with Professor John Crown. Coming up next, writerswebtv.com, a world first innovation in online education for writers with Vanessa O'Loughlin from writing.ie. Talking books on News Talk 106 to 108. Thanks for listening to this News Talk 106 to 108 podcast. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.